1: So, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Matthew Thompson about his new book, "Reconstructing Public Housing: Liverpool's Hidden History of Collective Alternatives." So, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Dave. Great, great to be here.
1: Um, I I enjoyed this book immensely, partially because it's about Liverpool, uh, which you know almost immediately kind of puts it into my my good books, but also because it engages with what is a kind of major problem for British economy and society, um, but actually, you know, much more globally, which is the problem of, of housing and, you know, what we do about both, you know, housing practice and housing policy. And I think we'll unpack the kind of lessons from from Liverpool and, and your approach to uh, things like housing cooperatives, uh, the kind of broad... Um, kind of critical framework that you've got but one thing that's important about the book and it's important to stress about the book is it's also a book that's about a place um, not just a book about kind of housing policy or or housing theory and it's worth kind of starting I think with the place and this is a funny question to kick off with about you know could you introduce Liverpool but you know and how do you introduce a city uh, is it's a tricky question but it would be good to know maybe about uh, why you chose Liverpool, what are some of the kind of, you know, unique and interesting characteristics that made Liverpool a good place to do uh, housing research?
0: Mm, interesting question. Um, I mean, this is this is the kind of question that I open the book with, I guess, why Liverpool, and it does frame some of the book's themes around exceptionalism and, and Liverpool exceptionalism when it comes to some of the issues around housing and, and, and placemaking. Uh, I guess, I mean, Liverpool's a fascinating city, right? I mean, it's, as you say, as you say, Dave, you know, you're drawn to it yourself and you've, you've lived there yourself. And I've lived there for a couple of years as well, following my PhD, which was about, obviously, Liverpool. And um, I mean, it's a city that's always been in, but not of England, um, as the sort of saying goes, I guess. And so it's it's sort of been on the margins and it's been at the intersections of, of different continents, uh, I suppose, as well as as well as as well as on the margins of the of, of the British Isles, sort of related to Ireland and Wales and Scotland as much as to England. Um, and you know, it's a city that's been through a hell of a lot of change over the last two hundred years or so. Always, in many ways, at the forefront of some of these big global systemic um, trends of of, of industrialisation, colonialism, deindustrialisation, and now trying to find a, a way through this sort of Post-industrial transition, and through that, through those really sort of tumultuous changes, where the city, for instance, lost Liverpool itself, lost half its population in in, in less than half a century. So we're talking eight hundred thousand people down to four hundred thousand people from nineteen thirty to to nineteen nineteen eighty or so. And in that period, you know, the city's gone through huge, huge cataclysmic uh, change and, and struggle, class struggle particularly, but also community struggle has been a big part of that, so you, you see that manifested in in housing and housing experimentation, both from both from the state, the local state, and, and various different sort of professional groups and associations, but also from working class communities, particularly around that around that time in the 1960s and 70s, uh, going through those those changes responded in 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 quite interesting ways, um, produced, I guess, the British Isles' largest and most innovative. Housing cooperative movements um, or one of alongside Glasgow and London, but for a city of its size Liverpool really did sort of punch above its weight in that regard so we're talking sort of close to fifty co-ops were um, were set up this, uh, and, and and many of which continue to uh, to operate today uh, they were set up in the early 1970s in the late 1970s and early 1980s and so just just that just the, the, the kind of the curious historical process of, of, that, of that movement really drew me to the city originally. Um, but I mean, my, I was doing a PhD on kind of um, looking at uh, alternative ways to do regeneration, um, not just housing, but regeneration as a, as a kind of wider issue. I was, I, I was doing, a, I, I'd done a planning master's in London. I, I kind of had this idea that I was going to go into um, urban planning, town planning after my undergraduate and I ended up doing a PhD because I sort of came out of the, uh, I came out of the masters at a time or came, came into the masters at the time of the, of the, of the global financial crash. And that obviously affected property markets big time and it actually affected um, design um, planning firms. And so no one was hiring. So, but fortuitously I ended up with a PhD in Manchester I'm very interested in alternative ways of doing regeneration and urban and urban design and placemaking generally. And housing was a big part of that. And Liverpool really, um, it kind of it, it caught my imagination for a number of reasons. It just there was more. There were, there were some really interesting things going on there in contemporary terms. You know, in the community land trusts that were emerging in the city, homebaked and Granby, which are a big part of the book. Um, the, the only other city that really has that kind of um, sort of creativity and innovation in 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 in, in contemporary collective housing is London. Uh, and being based in Manchester, it seemed quite, it quite seemed like a natural. Natural, natural place to, to to go to, really, Liverpool. And actually, I could get, I could jump on the train and and go there, you know, to and fro um, week by week. Uh, and the other factor, of course, was my supervisor, Steve Hinks. Uh, was born and bred Scouser, and he was like, "Why don't you look at Liverpool? This, this city is 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 right for this stuff." And uh, yeah, and it's been it was a great bit of advice in many ways.
1: It always a good bit of advice to look at Liverpool. Always uh, a good bit of advice that. Um, You threw up a couple of of points that will be useful to kind of clarify before we get into um, the the kind of core points the book is making. One is this thing about um, co-ops, about, uh, I think you you described them as kind of collective housing alternatives in the book. uh, You mentioned, you know, Glasgow, London, having a history of this. Um, One question is like, so what are we talking about? What are these things? But I suppose part of the definition of What a collective housing alternative, what a housing co-op is, is in response to um, a kind of bigger question about how we should understand housing, which kind of animates the book. So maybe you could kind of sketch out um, these collective alternatives, what housing co-ops are, and then we can move on to kind of think about um, some broader questions about the nature of housing itself.
0: Yeah, sure. So... um... Yeah, maybe let's go through a, a, a nice, neat definition of, of collective housing alternatives. So, I mean, they're a kind of collection of, of of alternatives to public and private ways of owning and managing land and housing, particularly affordable housing. So, you know, public forms might include council housing in, in the UK, other forms of, of, of state ownership, and private is the user, you know, either rented or, or, or unoccupied in various other forms, um, you know, provided by the market. And so collective housing alternatives are very much an alternative to the, to, to the public, to the public, to public forms of affordable housing. And they're rooted in traditions of commons and cooperativism. So it's about, um, so it's about cooperative ways of, of, of governing spaces uh, for living. And there are multiple different kind of um, incarnations of this, I guess. So you've got housing cooperatives, which, which the book is, is very broadly about, um, community land trusts, as I've mentioned, um, co-ownership models, co-partnership models, co-housing, which is a big, a big movement in in Europe, particularly, and and, and also in, in the states, and various different, you know, and various different other kind of legal, organizational forms that can kind of sit within this sort of umbrella term. I mean, I've cho- I've chosen collective housing alternatives quite explicitly out of a range of different options. I guess um, I, I frame it in that way, um, when in fact. The field in which I'm sort of writing in, um, community-led housing, um, uses that term. Uses community-led, and on the on the continent in, in continental Europe, there's a, there's a there's an emerging term around collaborative housing. And these are these are more commonly used, I guess, to describe the similar similar kinds of things. But I, I take issue really with these two different definitions for for various reasons. I mean, first is in, in community-led housing, there's a kind of parochialism to it. There's an inward-looking um, focus on the community. And I guess what I'm trying to do with Collective Housing Alternatives is, is, is really flag the relationship to the public, the notions of accountability and democratic outwardness um, as alternatives to public housing and not just um, a sort of community-led, you know, defined um, community sort of solution that can sometimes be a bit isolated from wider wider discourses and wider issues. And collaborative as well, um, I take issue with because it sort of suggests there's, it puts the partnership aspects and the collaboration aspects to the fore and perhaps underplays quite, um, which basically means that it, it, it allows for um, commodified versions or, or, or sort of privatised versions of of, of of collective living. So, for instance, um, owner-occupied co-housing. What I'm trying to do in the book is describe an alternative way beyond capitalism and beyond commodified forms of of, of ownership Um, so collective housing alternatives really does um, it really it really does underline that decommodified aspect so how this is land and housing that has been taken off the market explicitly in order to avoid um, the pitfalls that the market opens in terms of um, uh, and sort of and and, and sort of opens for dwellers really in terms of in terms of the spaces they inhabit could
1: you give me any Examples. I mean, I'm sort of struck. One way of reading the book is as a kind of set of examples of the 70s, the 80s, um, a, a kind of a, a maybe a bit of a lull in the 1990s, and then the, the kind of um, the emergence of of where we are um, now with with this um, alternative to both, you know, kind of state, local state, um, and market approaches to housing. Um, and maybe we can start in the 70s because that's sort of where the uh, you see the roots of, of the present day really and again I, I mean it's interesting what you'd sketch there the idea of you know taking land out of market relations the idea of Commons because it, in some ways that the initial kind of moments of, of the co-ops that you're thinking about in Liverpool in the 70s are critical of you know both the kind of um, activities of the council they're certainly critical of you know a kind of failing housing market but also um, I, I guess there's you know a setting that allowed them to emerge as this as this alternative so yeah what, what's the story of the birth of the co-ops in the 70s yeah very good
0: question <laughs> this is a, this is obviously something that I I try and cover at, at length in, in the opening chapters of the book. Um, but I will do my best to summarise. So, yeah. So I guess Liverpool at the time in the in the mid seven in the in the mid seventies was facing severe issues around housing dereliction um, and decline and and and, and um, some sort of deprivation I guess in relation to housing. So I frame this in terms of the housing question. So Eng- Frederick Eng- Engels' um, sort of original provocation to the, to those of us on the left I guess trying to to think beyond beyond capitalism. And the housing question is broadly the, the question of how to how to provide dwelling adequate dwelling for all of us in who, who live in, in capitalist economies, when capitalism actually reproduces scarcity, deprivation, alienation, and other forms of um, other forms related to the, to the exploitation that capitalism basically sort of thrives upon. Um, and, and Back in the day, back in the 19th century, Engels was his imagined interlocutor was prude, was prude on. Um, the anarchist the, the French anarchist Proudhon, who actually was unfortunately already dead by the time that Engels was writing um, was debating with him in his, in, his, in his book The Housing Question but the debate was around was around whether small scale alternatives like collective housing alternatives like co-ops could ever provide a solution to the housing question could ever go beyond um, cap- the capitalist production of housing which reproduces scarcity within it continually and creates division and, and inequalities and alienation and so on. And those 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 um, those anarchists, I guess, uh, heirs to uh, heirs to Proudhon's philosophy, would argue in a way that um, that, they, that they could, in some respect, but at least some isolated solution or some localized solution. And Engels, um, in the Marxist tradition, um, counted in, in 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 very convincing terms. Really, it's very difficult to argue with Engels. The logic is, is is rigorous. You know that the, the, the the global system, you know, systematic kind of um, integration of of housing production within within capital means that we'll never escape this unless we abolish the mode of capital itself. But I guess here then the the, the question becomes: How do we abolish the mode of capital? And so there are kind of transitional prefig what we call prefigurative um, forms of, of of moving beyond capital that are actually that. that that are expressed in these in these in these different forms of, of collective housing alternatives. So they kind of prefigure a different kind of society within the within the structures and so, social practices that they um, that they embody and that they that they they they, um, they express. Now in 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 the seventies in Liverpool you had a situation where um, the debate resounded basically down the decades. So you've got Colin Ward, the anarchist planner, which sounds like a bit of a paradox. Um, him more of the anarchist planner, He was a, quite a big figure in the town and country planning movement but, you know, you know, coming coming out of the garden cities in the 19th century. and also the anarchist architect, the barefoot architect John F. C. Turner. and they, and they they were the heirs to prude on and believed that um, housing that's that's controlled and managed and, and run democratically and collectively, but but ultimately um, autonomously by, by residents, by those that actually live in the dwellings. That housing will um, will always provide a better source of, of living. Heal divisions. It will heal the the, the ultimate division between um, the user and producer of of, of dwellings. Um, between the kind of um, between the act of, of dwelling and and the, and the product that that it sort of works through and, and produces. And these ideas had. Um, and if, you know, if, if over time they, they become generalised through society, they, they have a chance of beginning to prefigure this, this new society. And these ideas are around user autonomy, as, as Turner would call it, or um, collective dweller control, as, as Ward would call it, infused, um, quite interestingly, infused the, um, the ideas of various working class communities in Liverpool in the in mid-1970s one of these communities was the Weller Street, um, the Weller Street Co-op. And this was the first, this, event, this ended up being the first um, new build co-op. So a co-op that was built from the ground up, not just a rehabilitation um, of old terraces, but a new build co-op that was designed, developed and eventually owned and managed by its resident members. Um, and they were very much influenced by, by Ward's book, Tenants Take Over, in which he formulated these ideas around dweller, dweller control. That's only one half of the story. So the Weller Street were, were motivated, the Weller Street community were motivated by some of those radical ideas circulating in the 70s around these anarchist ideas around, around autonomy and dwelling control. But they were also motivated by need, by pressing need, quite urgent really in terms of um, their present living conditions. So they were threatened but on the one hand by deteriorating material conditions of the housing they were in which they were living in south, inner South Liverpool, around, in around Toxteth, which is very close to Granby, um, which I mentioned earlier, where the, where the CLT is, Community Land Trust is, is, is doing work today, and they're very close to the docks. So lots of the um, lots of the community, like many of the co-ops in Liverpool that followed the Weller Street, were employed um, in the docks. But the dock work at the time um, was drying up very quickly. So Liverpool, the reason why it lost half its population in in, in less than half a century was because it lost its um, its kind of global economic position in, within within colonial capitalism as a as a preeminent seaport and its maritime economy pretty much collapsed during the mid in the mid-20th century, following World War II, and left a lot of people unemployed in a lot of the neighborhoods in which these people were living, you know, in in, 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 in quite severe need. Uh, less money investing in in, in in local services and shops and so on and it ricocheted outwards. And the houses themselves were built in um, were built speculatively in the 19th century to house Many migrants, often Welsh, often Irish, um, or, or actually particularly in Toxeth and Granby, migrants from all, 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 all parts of the world, really. Caribbean, Southeast Asia, drawn to Liverpool through seafaring. But the Weller Street community were quite a tight-knit Catholic, white working-class community. Um, these houses were falling down but, um, pretty much by this point in the 70s, and there was not much money ra- around, to, as I say, to, to maintain them. That was one project houses were unfit for human habitation they were basically slums there were no you know there was no inside toilets no baths no hot running water the community and others like it really wanted them rebuilt they were demanding better housing conditions they were managed by the by the council liverpool council owned this stock at the time um they were council tenants or what they called the Corpy corporation liverpool corporation as it was known and The council um, represented, if you like, both an opportunity and a threat as well. Another threat, because what they were trying to do, quite understandably and, and admirably, in this sort of modernist post-war period, was to go. It was to rationalise many of these um, these inner-city slums through their what they called the slum clearance programme. So it was actually called the slum clearance programme, even as late as the 1970s. A um, good reason, perhaps. And they were rehousing their tenants in new-built. Um, much more hygienic, all the mod cons, you know, beautifully set out, you know, modernist estates, but often on the perimeter, on the perimeter, if you like, on the periphery of the metropolitan area, in in new boroughs around places like Runcourt, on Scalmersdale, Kirby, and or or elsewhere within the city region itself, within the sorry, within the city itself but many of the residents wouldn't actually be rehoused together. So that the, they didn't have enough housing stock to basically ensure that residents were able to, uh, to stay together. So the Weller Streets were basically campaigning against being um, broken up as a community. They wanted new housing, but they wanted to stay together. And um, so that the idea of a co-op, uh, the idea of a co-op presented itself. And this was partly because at the time the national legislation was, was, was being enacted in the 1974 housing act. Um, that enabled that basically sort of brought co-ops to the fore of of, of the public housing debate. Housing associations were were being mooted as the, as a kind of alternative to council housing at the time, and housing co-ops were were quite fortuitously sort of included within the within this policy regime. They generously funded the development of um, new housing association and cooperative housing, and uh, many different professional associations, professional organisations specializing in the development of cooperative housing and housing association housing as a kind of third sector to the to the the public and private sectors they set up they set up shop in liverpool to take advantage of this in many ways to take advantage of this new regime this new policy regime and one of these one of these groups called cds cooperative development services big player in this story they um they worked very closely with the weller street co-op to basically pioneer this new model of co-op development where they would work um in this really intensive mutual learning process of participatory design democratic design they would really they would train up the residents in different in, in skills in planning and 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 all sorts you know surveying all sorts of different aspects of um from the development process from start to finish so they'd inter- they, they, would, they would train up the, they would upskill the residents to interview architects for instance and contractors and then those architects and contractors would work likewise with the residents but only as their kind of um as their servant so it flipped on the head this kind of professional client relationship these communities had never really experienced that before um and they built they built what the communities demanded really of them so they were the, they were the scribes rather than the actual kind of the architects were just the scribes and the communities themselves told them what to draw as one of the phrases of the weller streets had it and that process of that, that there was, a, it was an incredible process of empowerment and um, so the communities themselves um, work you know they, they were kind of united if you like around this new form of solidarity the process of campaigning brought them together and and and, and inspired this kind of long-term practices of cooperation which kept co-op going after the, the after the process of building it was complete but also individually individual members you know through that pro, all those processes of unemployment and and, and, and deprivation that was was rife in Liverpool at the time Many people found new jobs and found new skills through this process and others were politicised and radicalised to become councillors, local councillors, within, uh, often representing their communities in the Labour Party, sometimes in the Communist Party. And some of them actually went on to become cabinet members within the local council and reformed some of the council policy around housing and actually ended up pushing forward policies that would help the next generation of co-ops. So there was quite an interesting, there was a very interesting sort of um, sort of virtuous circle um, that was kick-started by the Weller Street and then the other co-ops were were followed through this this kind of integrated system, if you like. This kind of um, what many people at the time, many commentators were calling public sector housing 2.0, a kind of new paradigm in public housing that was basically meant to replace the sort of the top-down paternalistic, anti-democratic form of public housing of the council, of the corpi, with this much more participatory um intensive democratic design process and also then very cooperative uh, um governance process that followed and and a, and a mutual form of ownership where each member had you know had a stake in uh, each resident had a stake in the actual um the actual co-op and the building that they that they lived in
1: i mean not, not to give too many spoilers away for potential readers but uh but yeah that isn't what what happened in terms of the kind of story of uh, of housing in the city from from the 70s onwards and what one way of of kind of thinking about um maybe the kind of contrast between that uh, moment and that um desire for a new you know mode of of housing policy particularly in terms of who was in control of it and, and forms of participation is by jumping all the way forward to today um i mean the, the book has got these really rich um and, and very detailed discussions about the 1980s some listeners might be familiar with the 1980s as a particularly kind of productive but also uh, a complicated and conflictual if that's a word um decade for for the city and and they're a really interesting case studies in and questions of you know well who has power who has control what actually is top down what is is bottom up in in terms of some of the case studies from the 80s but um i'd like to kind of get you to to talk through um some of the more recent case studies to reflect on um the promise of, of the co-op movements and and where we are now so could, could you tell me the story both of, of Granby, which, which is in Liverpool Eight, which which you know you've talked about the um, whether we'd call it the kind of this is a multicultural district uh, in the city. Um, it, you know, it's quite close to the city centre, but has um, its own unique housing challenges. And you'd mentioned some of the uh, questions of kind of poor quality housing, and then um, there's you know a, a narrative of the reemergence and regeneration of the area following the 1980s and then there's also um, a story about um, community land trusts in the uh, stories of you know artists pie shops <laughs> and kind of local uh, transformations in um, the north of the city as well so yeah what, what's the story of um, the community land trust in Granby and, and in Anfield and and what do they tell us about Uh, the similarities and differences with the co-ops of the 70s
0: okay great so i mean if you don't mind i'm going to do the same as what i just did which is to frame that question in in the abstract terms of uh, the theory in which i introduced in the book um hopefully not too much of a long-winded answer but so in this as 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 you say dave you know the 1980s were quite a kind of conflictual sort of time um Quite contradictory in many ways and uh, and what i suggest in the book is that so the book is framed in three parts which um broadly correlate to the three three different decades or long decades the, the first part of the ha- is the housing question as i've introduced it um, and sort of i've obviously brushed over and given a quite an idealistic reading of, of that um, But by the 1980s that the problem if you like had changed from from the focus on deprivation at a housing level to a focus on deprivation at a neighborhood level. So I call this the neighborhood question. And this is this is not far from Engel's original question. I mean, He moves in that direction, and starts talking about uneven urban development, how um, because of the nature of global capital roving around the world looking for opportunities to valorize itself, you end up with um, this kind of seesaw, this locational seesaw as, as capital um, flees and then, and, and then, and then re, and refixes at different places. And Liverpool, being the city that it was at the time, obviously went through this this, this kind of tumultuous um, evacuation of, of capital uh, and neighborhood, whole neighborhoods where it became became kind of um, host to these these symptomatic problems um, of abandoned neighborhood abandonment and uh, and you know empty properties, hundreds of empty properties, and what policymakers in by the 1990s were calling an oversupply of Victorian terraces. There just literally weren't enough people to fill them and 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 the market was crashing result. Well. and in that period the housing so in that period the, the the kind of the solution if you like the kind of localized isolated solution um changed as well from co-ops to community development trusts which had it had their own particular structure and and different ways of solving that those issues which i won't talk about now but by the 1990s and 2000s I, I Then I move into into diff, into new theoretical terrains and, and, and talk about the urban question, so the neighbourhood question. Now scales up into the urban question. This is kind of, I guess, where is so Marxist scholars following Engels, I guess, working in his shadow in many ways, or be and obviously going way beyond him. Though people like um, Castells and Lefebvre and Harvey uh, and Merrifield, I, I pick up on on, on these um, these theorists and, and 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 think and try to work through the idea that. The urban space itself, the urban land and space and the, and the buildings that are, are on it, become sites of capital accumulation and ways in which capital, capital can itself huge drivers and engines of profit making in ways which they just weren't before by the 2000s. And so in Liverpool we see that manifested. So you get this kind of um, this crazy concatenation of different forces in Liverpool, where um, those empty those empty houses and those those abandoned neighborhoods become sites of um forms of profit making driven by the state by the local state in consort in consort with the national state also in partnership with with private developers and housing associations um in what i call grant regimes and quite interestingly these housing associations were actually some of them had morphed out of the original cooperative development um, agencies that had started the co-op movement in the 70s so cds became plus dane Plus, Dane was now embroiled in these new um, these new partnerships for basically regenerating these terraced streets um, in a program called Housing Market Renewal. Housing Market Renewal was a massive program that that was set up by the New Labour New Labour government in the early two thousands across many northern cities in in England, multi billion pounds. Quite similar to to Hope Six, I think it is in in the US. So this is about. Um, is about um, replacing, demolishing, and rebuilding comprehensively, clearing, sometimes rehabilitating vast swathes of under occupied or um, difficult to let houses, or those in England as it was framed, suffering from market failure, housing market failure. So this is where how this is where housing and, and neighbourhoods become kind of objectified as commodities and the market and as markets, the space they're just purely markets, not spaces to live in. And they failed as markets rather than failed as spaces to uh, to actually sort of inhabit and, and live a life. Um, so this was the next round of comprehensive clearance, if you like, following the slum clearances of the, of, of the 70s. And um, housing market renewal swept through um, inner areas like Granby and Anfield where um, the community land trusts eventually emerged in response to it. So... Here we see community land trusts becoming the vehicle for um, for the solution, if you like, to the urban question as it's been reframed from the housing questions. Rather than co-ops, we have CLTs. And the CLTs are kind of they have the kind of legal the, the legal articulation of 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 um, that's sort of inscribed in their in their organisation is is set up such that they can actually provide um, some alternative to to this this form of um, this form of development this form of um, profit making development i mean the way that the way if just quickly touch on what why how how the council and the housing associations and the private developers made money out of this they they first got huge subsidies from the from, from the government to demolish housing uh, they can possibly purchased up properties um, at a low price uh, and then sold consolidated those, those those properties into land banks sold them on to private developers uh, and to rebuild um, Make money through through that through that through that through sale. it's the sale of new houses, but also the council then also profits from higher rate council taxes as a result. And the housing associations are also involved in that because they it's a quite complex argument, but basically they they um they they raise the asset value of of of, of houses that they thought that they that they own because the whole area is improved as a result, and they're able to borrow more money on 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 private markets, which is the way that they actually uh, manage to fund affordable housing development. Quite a complicated set of factors, all emanating out of reforms from the 1980s, neoliberal reforms of the 1980s around housing. But in response to this, residents in these areas um, that were mooted for development um, campaigned vociferously against demolition uh, and displacement and being broken up as a community in kind of similar ways to what you see, what, you know, what we saw in the Weller Street and other co ops in the, in the 1970s. But in this, um, in this situation, so um, in Granby in particular, the, it, it was, the context was quite different. So this is, as you, as you say, Dave, it was, a, it was a multicultural area of Liverpool. and still is, very much so. It was, it's the centre of the oldest, uh, most established black community in the UK, not far away from the, what was the largest and oldest uh, Chinatown in, in Europe. Um, so we've been the centre of diaspora from various different parts of the world. Obviously, Liverpool has an incredible seafaring heritage, and various different people have ended up settling from all over the world in this in this space, so for instance, it's got the Liverpool Malay Club. so Singaporean and Malaysian sailors um would often come to, uh, to socialize in a, in, a, in, a, in a club on on in and around Granby. So Granby itself, this small neighbourhood was the centre of 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 a very rich kind of multicultural culture. Um, but it suffered decline like the rest of Liverpool and was, was mooted for demolition. Um, the housing stock was beautiful. It still is, it's been saved. Um, so you can see how there was a kind of uh, vested interest in, 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 in this from the word go. I mean, the, the, this, the kind of housing um, that was there would be incredibly um, incredibly valuable in, in another kind of context, like London, for instance. But in Liverpool, it was worth very little at the time because of these because of market failure. But Residents still lived there, and they and they and they sort of actually sort of many some of them laid down in front of bulldozers. They painted antel vandal paint on um, on doors that were that, that were trying to get into to to uh, basically rip apart the houses within. The kind of sort of signifier of the civic vandalism that was going on, and through this sort of this process, I mean, this particular community in Granby, um, they started to sort of experiment with an alternative. It started with it started around sort of guerrilla gardening. Kind of insurgent forms of um, of temporary urbanism, if you like, that and, and gardening and kind of plant growing um, in the street, in right in the street, these derelict streets that hadn't really been occupied very much for the last um, several decades, and had and, and the council would stop collecting bins, and they'd stop the street lights have been turned off. So there was a kind of managed decline going on. In that context, home, the homeowners that remained that hadn't been kicked out because they owned their properties, unlike some of the tenants. Started this, this process of beautifying the area and kind of creating this kind of green this kind of green oasis in amongst the dereliction, and that attracted more and more people to get involved in the project. There's a street market that was set up that that, that um, sort of enabled people on low incomes, particularly in that area, to to have you know access to different different forms of um, of trading and social reproduction in this in this in these in a difficult economic circumstances and that became very popular as well and it formed the basis for a campaign around a community land trust so where the vision through this community land trust was for um the neighborhood to be um retained rather than demolished and it would be owned by the community for the, the longer term redevelopment of the of the wider area and the different the, the way that the clt worked compared to a co-op is that it it's it has a different kind of legal framework if you like so based on a trust structure rather than a cooperative ownership structure. The trust structure, if you like, sits kind of above the the ownership of the buildings. It owns the land through a kind of um, almost sort of stewardship or trusteeship type um, value system, where um, different aspects of the community, different parts of the community are represented on a democratically elected board. And that board sort of um, is is accountable for the direction of this this organization and of the stewardship of that wider area. And then um, the buildings themselves, which the, which the which the trust owns, can be leased to individuals or to even or to organisations and collectives. So, they, so in in the case of Granby, you have a situation where a cooperative, a fully mutualized housing cooperative, is um, is leasing five buildings from the CLT. So it works in combination with co-ops. You start to see some interesting um, kind of hybrid or sort of partnership uh, workings between different collective housing alternatives. Um, um. Because of that stewardship role, the CLT and the way that the governance structure is quite is, is, is about this kind of wider stakeholder and of participation rather than just cooperative members only, as in the case of co-ops. So it sort of looks to the wider community. It means that there are that it does include or has the potential to include um, much more of a diverse sort of local local community and local stakeholders who, who, who may feel that they have some stake in that space. And so it enables this kind of almost. Democratic deliberation—it's a kind of arena or an umbrella for, for thinking through and debating the future of of a space, um, unlike perhaps a co-op, which is is much more inward-looking and is much more about member benefit alone. So there's some really interesting um, some in- interesting progressions and in contrasts with the 1970s, um, in ways which perhaps reflect that kind of more diverse space of Gramby, but also reflects the um, you know the nature of the contemporary nature of the urban question.
1: As you were talking about, I was really struck by, not to sound like the kind of local tourist board, but it's it's worth going actually around, um, the this area of Liverpool to, to see actually precisely, you know, the re-emergence of, as you mentioned, the uh, street market, the idea of, um, the, you know, the kind of, in, in some parts of it, the kind of re-greening um, of the space. and And you could say sort of, you know, in some ways what's happened in the north of the city is um, you know kind of complicated by the presence of things like the football club and kind of inward uh, maybe sort of tourism or or almost Um, but yeah the the Granby example um, as you'd sketched out particularly this question of kind of um, control and engagement is um, I suppose you know the Evolution and also a method of kind of solving some of the problems that uh, the book details around co-ops. And, and yeah, you know, <laughs> listeners should go there and, and you know, should kind of see what uh, this um, project, this um, mode of um, collective alternatives is has done for the area I, I suppose though and and you know you kind of flagged some US examples as you were talking but the, the big question that comes from the book and we've you know only sort of scratched the surface with with the book is the extent to which you think there are you know lessons for other places you know the extent to which um, for, for quite good reasons some of the things that have gone on in Liverpool have really unique local dynamics that have driven them uh, whether it's tensions with uh, the city council over a kind of 30-year period irrespective of uh, the political makeup of, of that um, organization or whether it's you know particular kind of um, place-based uh, narratives and, and again you know, you flagged up um, the quality of housing stock in in the Granby area that you know in other cities in the UK would be you know hugely kind of desirable and, and probably extremely expensive so yeah to what extent is is the kind of the liverpool story a, a lesson for other places you, you know uh, are things like community land trusts you know the sorts of things that could be recommended for other places or is the story of reconstructing public housing really a, a liverpool story only
0: mm, good question question sorry i forgot that i didn't really mention Homebake after you'd introduced the pies um i can touch on Homebake. the homebaked is sort of liverpool's is Granby's sister CLT, you like, the other side of liverpool next to liverpool football club um i can maybe touch on some of that in this in this response um
1: yeah i mean basically like can everywhere have a really high quality pie shop as part of their yeah. uh, housing uh, policy
0: so exact so this is kind of interesting so, so homebaked is an interesting example of 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 some of the sort of spatial dynamics and the kind of um the exceptionalism argument I guess which is really like on a knife edge with this this book and I don't really think I satisfactorily answer it. I sort of just open questions really around whether there is how do we replicate these things, how do we scale them up? Can they can they be reproduced in other places in different contexts where there aren't perhaps all these different factors. So I use a lot of metaphors inspired by Home Pies particularly so Home is a bakery, a co op in um in um in Anford opposite the football club. And I'm, I'm sort of using a lot of they they they, they use sort of um, they have reports and and different sort of blog entries and things think, and that play on the on the fact that they produce bread and and, and pies and they they talk about a recipe for revolution for instance. So in this recipe for revolution, I'm trying to basically in the book I'm I'm, I'm I'm sort of riffing off of this and trying to think about what the ingredients are. What are the ingredients for these things to basically like emerge and flourish elsewhere, not just in Liverpool? I think I, identi- I identify like I don't know seven. Factors and some of them are very very specific. You know, like the opportunity presented by the availability of land, low cost land. That that, that both in the seventies and today, um, this, the the ops and CLTs have actually um capitalized upon. Um, very very difficult to do this perhaps in London, although there are CLTs in London emerging. But just in the on the flip side of the coin of capitalism, I guess, or capitalist land markets. You know, there was there there's the kind of histories in Liverpool of radical kind of um, organizing linked to kind of an anar- anar- anarcho-syndicalist kind of seafaring culture, which has quite specific, and it's it's a city of radicals it's often portrayed. It's got this kind of, um, it's got a swagger. It's got a kind of firebrand, anti-authoritarian uh, finger up to kind of, uh, you know, England and, and capitalist bosses' approach to, to, to life, and it's, it's it's a wonderful space to really to, to be in in that, in that respect. And But that, that doesn't translate necessarily across other places. So, you know, how do we get beyond these sort of factors that are quite specific? Johnson Birchall, uh, co-op um, theorist who who's worked the hidden history of, of housing in, in the UK, is kind of what I'm also drawing on in, in a way. I'm doing I'm doing a hidden history of, of Liverpool co He talks about he uses a kind of um, he uses kind of ecological cultivation metaphors around um, around sort of um, the environment, the climate, the cultivators. You, what what kind of factors do you need for for these things? A sort of horticultural kind of a metaphor? You need to make flourish. It needs to be rained upon by finance, you know, that, that we saw in the 70s, but do we, do we see it today in the CLTs? In many ways, yeah. So, I mean, uh, by doing that, by kind of delineating those ingredients, I'm trying to sort of systematize and set out what it might take to actually establish an infrastructure for building them elsewhere. And I guess I kind of bring, I boil it down to sort of three different approaches, I suppose. So building an infrastructure within the movements of community, la- of of not just community land trusts, but collective housing alternatives more broadly, is really important. So how do we federate? How do we how do we how do we kind of network these things into a structure that can actually withstand attacks from hostile forces? Perhaps Thatcher's government in the eighties, or we haven't talked about Militant Council, but that was a big factor in the, in the mid eighties in Liverpool. Um, You know, um, but also then how to sort of like reproduce some of the values over time and and stop co-ops or or CLTs to to degenerate as generations move. And and perhaps the kind of early lessons of solidarity and the kind of excitement of a campaign struggle start to dissipate. What to do after that? Um, So the book touches on a lot of a lot of those issues. So building an infrastructure from from below, um, building a kind of structure of bureaucracy, if you like, for sort of um, facilitating the expansion of these things. Through democratic processes is a real is a real um, key part of the, the conclusion of this book and um, there's a real tension in that you know so bureaucracy entails a kind of ossification a calcification of these kind of organic energies these creative energies that really push forward and drive um, drive these 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 kind of radical kind of political initiatives from below from the people themselves over time you need to you need ways to actually to to make this to make them happen perhaps more systematically or in other places that don't have those radical energies, maybe, then you need procedures, but procedures by nature, actually, you know, end up bureaucratizing things and then making them boring. So I kind of, you know, I try to sort of, um, I, get, I, I sort of really dig into that dialectic of, of, of kind of organic energy um, uh, and sort of bureaucratic structure. Um, so in Liverpool, you have a system, you have a situation now where um, breaking ground, it's, it's, it's been established this year, just gone. Which is a kind of community-led housing hub uh, at the city regional level for facilitating the development of all different kinds of collective housing alternatives. So co-ops, co-housing, CLTs. This is coming together of the movement into a kind of much more infrastructural kind of form formation, which is which is brilliant, brilliant news. You you had the Merseyside Federation of Housing Co-ops in the in the in the seventies and eighties that disbanded in the nineties. So this is the breaking ground. is a real um, it's, a, it's a really interesting development. Um, Another another aspect that um, I I touch on is, you know, is the state. How do we get the state to support this stuff? So there's a real um, tension between um, the tradition of the commons or community-led housing, which is done autonomously, independently through self-organisation. Very much, and the commons as as a kind of anti-capitalist discourse is very much antagonistic toward the state as 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 a social form of capital. But nonetheless, I to try to kind of tease apart those contradictions and say, well, hang on, the state is um, uh, is you know is a powerful is a powerful institutional infrastructure that that, that we need if you like in the movement to, to to at least enable some of the some of the some of the legal codes, for instance, or legislative apparatus, and also funding. If we if we don't have um, you know if we don't have an, an infrastructure purely in the in the movement itself, so if, you know. For instance, there's the you know legal legal reforms have happened in the last decade. The 2014 Co- Cooperative Act recently that's established new kinds of um, cooperative community benefit societies, which are much more. Which is what community land trusts are becoming recently. Which, which they have different kind of benefits and advantages legally that opens up different forms of, of of finding funding or different ways of working, which can help. So a big part of the book at the end is how do we re-engineer the state to do this? What do we need? You know, do we need insurgent kind of guerrilla kind of bureaucrats going in like we perhaps might have seen with the Corbyn McDonnell leadership of the Labour Party before it failed uh, catacly- cataclysmically perhaps in in late 2019 or at a local level you might you see for instance the Preston model um which is using um a community wealth building strategy that's been imported from the US from the Cleveland model through the, the likes of the Democracy Collaborative now sort of now basically trying to re-engineer the local state, um, basically sort of favor the development of things like this so they're using procurement um flows of um of the of key anchor institutions so hospitals universities the local council police constabularies county councils you name it it's public non-profit anchored organizations that that, that that really can't move like like Football's capital or corporate corporate businesses how do we tap into those flows that the spending the spending um Capacities that those organisations have to actually start to divert some of that money into, say, worker-owned co-ops or, or community land trusts to set up different kind these different kinds of um, ways of owning, managing the economy, um, which includes housing, of course. So there are these different factors, and then the last, the last, um, I guess, approach that I sort of suggest and start to tease apart in the book is um, kind of building a narrative, um, thinking about how we communicate this stuff and translate this stuff diff- between different mediums. And I suppose in quite humble terms, this book is one of my attempts at doing that. to communicate. I try to write it in not too academic <laughs> terms with, with as little academies as I could, as I could possibly uh, bear to, to write um, in a way which I, I hope communicates the value of these things. But, you know, we need to sort of, the last part of the book is about myth-making and about um, how the right has a lot of myths that are set up to basically, Myths and legends and parables and stories that are set up to basically, um, you know, undermine and and and, and um, discredit commons and 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 community-led alternatives and collective housing alternatives. So, for instance, like you know, Hardin's tragedy of the commons um, parable is the thing that resounds in people's minds when they think about the commons. But how do we how do we reconfigure this stuff? How do we re-narrate it and, and tell different stories that can communicate this stuff down the generations, but also expand it out quickly so the public is. Public is, you know, interested in this stuff, and the imaginations are caught by by these things, which is a, is no, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult task when we're we're dominated by ideologies around um, home ownership, but also around general kind of atomized individualism and and and, and commodity um, trading, and you know, under neoliberal capitalism. So, I guess that sort of broadens the arc, the, the story back out. Um, but I before do you? Want take, I don't know if I've got enough time, but I could. I could possibly comment on home-baked situation, which I haven't done yet.
1: Well, I I think the question to wrap up with is those um, maybe like, you know, kind of three lessons, is that something you're going to be kind of working on uh, next? Um, Is there a, you know, a kind of book actually spinning out the kind of how you overturn some of the myths um, that percolate around housing Um, or are you thinking about doing kind of a completely different uh, set of, of research work now?
0: Well, I'm, I'm currently working on a project around municipalism. So municipalism and community wealth building and cooperative alternatives in cities. So I'm trying to scale up this question from housing, from housing alternatives at a neighbourhood level, if you like, to thinking about cities more broadly. And so that's why the Preston model comes into this book, I suppose, and that it frames the next Um and I'm thinking about this in terms of political economy and the flow, flows of value as they move through cities. And so I guess here we go. This is my chance to actually to sort of set up this homemade. Finally, actually <laughs> to talk about this homemade example. So the homemade co-op that sells part that makes pies and bread is opposite the Liverpool Football Club. Now, that is its source of income because it gets huge amounts of money from the football fans that flood past it, if you like, on their way to and from the stadium on match days. So it's reliant, It's kind of anchor. It's in a way. It's a, it's an anchor. It's a community anchor organization that does a lot of amazing stuff for the local community, but its its source of value is 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 tied very much into this 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 global capitalist um, football club circuit, right? We've recently seen with the Europeans, you know, the European Super League, for instance. Um, and so there's a kind of interesting contradiction there around the political economic sources and um you know and barriers to these things. So they're often they're tied in to um, the global economy in ways which, we, which are not very, not very they're, not sim, they're not simply this or that like or, or why. Very complicated. So for instance, Liverpool Football Club was another one of the threats that motivated the CLT to then take on this terrace that the home-baked bakery sits, sits on. It was trying to expand its stadium and demolish many of the terrace houses. And it worked in consort with housing market renewal at the time. So it's both, the Liverpool Football Club, like any big, and it's an anchor institution in many ways as well, it's a privately owned one, it's both friend and foe of the movement and, and, and in a way represents that kind of flow of capital through a space. How do we harness that flow of capital while at the same time using it um, in a way extracting value from that, from that flow of capital that in itself has extracted value from elsewhere to actually then divert into much more socially useful, socially valuable endeavours like the community land trust and the bakery. So the bakery sits in a building, is, is, is operating from a building that is owned by the home-baked community land trust, which is its landlord. And this is a kind of family of, um, of businesses that's emerging around, around here opposite, opposite um, Liverpool Football Club. And so, yeah, I guess I'm really interested in working out how, how, how do we think about those kind of relationships at a broader scale of the city and, and how cities then actually perhaps cooperate, interact, and actually start to build movements across, across borders, trans, transnationally. Um, I'm particularly interested in this transatlantic movement emerging between cleveland and preston between the democracy collaborative and the center for local economic strategies for instance in the uk um between the states and and the uk and i'm i'm so i'm I'm, yeah i think the questions remain quite similar they've always i've always been interested in these kind of institutional dynamics of of how do we move beyond capital whilst sort of working within it i suppose in this contradictory way and i'm just now so i don't don't know when the next book's gonna, gonna be written but um i'm looking forward to it and that's yeah so uh comes to the end of a three year project and I'm about to